Hey, folks, I'm Tom. KJ here. You've heard this before, but we're new and improved now, and so is the Dunlap Champions Club. It's back for another year. You know that. By now, if you have not been in there, I don't know what you've been doing, but we will remind you, this is always the best time to test drive. If you want to check it out, we have the spring game coming up April 18th, followed by a concert. Uh, good pricing to get in and see what you've been missing. A reserved chairback seat, access to indoor air-conditioned areas, always a good thing. All-inclusive food and soft drinks starting two hours before kickoff. Access, I love this part, to adult beverages and more. Funny that you would be the one to bring that up. Uh, the home schedule this year, obviously, when we get to the, the fall portion, uh, the, the meat of the actual football season, I guess I should say. Clemson and Florida are on the docket. Pitt coming to town for basically the first time since uh, since KJ played. Well, I guess shortly after you uh should we say retired? Finished. I, I wish finished. That's good. Finished. Anyway, uh, as far as the spring game goes, again, 5 o'clock kick on April 18th. And if you're a, a booster member already, a, a ticket holder in the Dunlap Champions Club, it's just 60 bucks to get in for that. Uh, if not, $80. But either way, uh, particularly if you're general public and have not sampled the Dunlap Champions Club, Champions Club it's the best way to do it. You Six, can schedule a private tour as well. So if you don't want to, if you want to buy after seeing, you can go in, take a good look, walk around, see what's going on. It's a big place, twenty thousand square feet of space, uh, can handle up to five hundred folks. If you've got other plans for other types of events that you want to schedule, it's worth the visit. Six four four eighteen thirty is the number to call. Now, without further ado, Front Row Knowles. Broadcasting live from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in the capital city of Tallahassee, this is Front Row Knowles with Tom Block and Keith Jones. Front Row Knowles is brought to you by Cornerstone Tool and Fastener, online at ctf.nu. Now, here's Tom and Keith. Good day, everybody. Tom and KJ back with you here once again to fill one hour of that big void in your life. I know you've been counting down the hours until we get here, but this is Front Row Knowles. Keith, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, and I think both of us are going to get certified Zoom operator status. Uh, at least uh, we're getting better at it, maybe, I hope. I'm trying to. I feel like my life is a Zoom, and I wish you would have given me the stock tip to invest in Zoom I would have even taken February 1st, but certainly if you would have let me know maybe last August or September, I feel like there was probably some good value there. I I would agree. I would agree. We'll talk about Zoom uh, throughout this broadcast because Patrick Burnham will join us. And Zoom is uh, pretty prominent in the world of recruiting right now. Uh, Frankly, it's how business is getting done. It's how we're doing this this show. I had a chance earlier this week to catch up with Myron Roll, and it was via Zoom. And Myron is in the middle of working 24-hour on-off shifts on the front lines at Massachusetts General with the COVID-19 pandemic, and I hadn't talked to him in a number of years, but obviously I've known him over the years, both uh, through football duties and also sort of university duties at Florida State. I really can't say enough about him. I know that his story is out there, and it's made the rounds on the Today Show and ESPN and every media circuit out there, but what a great representative representative for FSU and it was good to reconnect with them and uh, I admire where what he's doing right now in the face of this pandemic well and and you remember and hopefully our listeners will remember you know when he did his interview for the Rhodes scholarship he actually was late for a ball game we were at Maryland and uh, he was doing the interview I believe in Alabama flew up on a private plane all legal it was taken care of 
but arrived at about halftime or right before halftime at Bird Stadium in Maryland. And you would have thought the president had shown up <laughs> and taken in the ball game. He ran into the locker room, got dressed, played in the second half. You were down on the field. Paul and I were on top of the press box, and it was cold. My gosh, it was cold. But that was a pretty uh, interesting arrival for one Myron Roll. Well, it was one of those, and you can make fun of the media because we're like sheep sometimes. You just go from point A to point B to point C. But obviously that's a big deal because college football players are not winning road scholars every year. I mean, I think it had been since Pat Hayden in the mid-'70s until Myron did it, at least at the Division One level. In 2008 is when he won it. You want to feel old, Keith? That was 2008, by the way. So we're talking. I hear you, and I appreciate it. Thanks very much. But everybody knew that he was testing that day, and word was out that he had won. And so the media is kind of, oh, there's the plane. Let's run over here. And I don't remember if it was a plane or a helicopter or whatever. There's the car, and he arrives. Well, now he's going over there. Let's run over there. Now he's going to the locker room. Let's run over there. Now he's getting dressed for the game. Why are we standing here watching him get dressed for the game? It was just one. But there were. Seriously, it was bizarre in that there's 30 media members and ESPN had all kinds of camera crews just following his every step. And I'm thinking, we could let him get dressed and finish this up out on the field, right? But it was – FSU won that game, and uh, he played in the second half. I mean, looking back, it, it, it it's even as amazing now as it was that night that that all transpired. But it, it was something to, to behold. Well, and, and, and as I mentioned, Tom, uh, with, with, with uh, Paul and I up way up high – we could see everything. We had, you know, uh, Florida State's uh, alumni band was there. The Chiefs weren't there, but Florida State had an alumni band there. And it's almost like they started playing fanfare when he came out of the locker room dressed, you know, like Superman had gone into the, into the phone booth and come out. It was, it was real, really different, really interesting, and quite memorable. I'll have that conversation with Myron Roll in our next segment. Myron joined us via the Earl Bacon Agency hotline, the Earl Bacon Agency, ensuring your future together. I feel like, Keith, and I commented to you on this just before we started the show, I'm not sure you and I have any connections left at Fox Sports Florida and Sun Sports because that's turned over and that feels like a lifetime ago. We were doing primetime Knowles. But they are definitely missing an opportunity to trot out all the work you did. We broadcast the games, but then you were involved in doing a lot of interviews with some of the stars of those games over the years. And we would, so people are conditioned and they remember the Sunday night re-airing of the Saturday game. But then over the summer, we'd fill the void and you'd pull out classic FSU games. I mean, we need some of that in our life right now. We don't have enough. I mean, I flip around on the TV every night and uh, the replays of the spelling bee and the live broadcasts of the video gaming are not doing it. Well, we're going to have Pat Burnham on later, and I'm sure he's going to talk about the, the video series that they're doing. And, and one of the things that is on the Osceola right now, as I looked at it, is, is a 35-, 40-minute interview with Leonard Hamilton. And one of the things that uh, was talked about during that were what were some of the memorable games, you know, during Coach Hamilton's time at Florida State and the ability to go on to YouTube and to look those games up on the basketball side and watch out, you can do the same thing on the football side. Uh, and, yeah, as we're, we're trying to pass the time, there are a lot of memories there to go back and relive. Side note, when I finished the interview with Myron Roll, which we'll play next segment, and, again, I did that earlier this week. It was Monday night just for context in case anything he says may have changed in the last 48 hours or so. We finished the interview, and uh, my last question, I asked him just about missing sports in general, not playing, but just he's in Boston, big sports town, and they're obviously missing it as much as we are. 
we stopped the interview and he said, you know what really disappointed me? The fact that I didn't get to see Leonard Hamilton and that basketball team play and go to the final four. And so we had a whole separate conversation about it because that's the biggest thing that's irked me thus far about this whole thing. And imagine as we transition to football a little bit, it's one thing that Florida State's in the middle of a rebuilding situation. And we can talk about whether they're going to go six and six or nine and three or what Mike Norvell's going to do. But I think we can both agree that they're not going to go 12 and 0 and win the ACC and win a national title. But imagine if that was the team you had coming back this year and now the college football season potentially won't get played. I mean, that's kind of what I feel like for basketball. But imagine if that translates to football, if you're a Clemson fan right now or a Bama fan or Ohio State. There, there's no question. Absolutely no question. And the, the pain, the hurt, the disappointment that Leonard and his, his team experienced, uh, you know, would just get magnified. And we talked the uh, last show last week about the financial ramifications. We don't even want to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, I, I, I can't get my hands around it at all, Tommy. That's for sure. I'm with you. So, yeah, I don't want to talk about the financial aspects, and all we're doing is speculating. We'll, we'll save that conversation for another Wednesday because I feel like we've got plenty of Wednesdays left to speculate on when the college season's going to start. So we'll give that one a break for tonight's show. I, I do want to once again thank the folks at uh, Madison Social and remind you that they continue to uh, – they basically take care of the worry for dinner for you. If you want to uh, just pick up and skip the cooking, you can just go right to Madison Social uh, – Today, Wednesday, they've got uh, $10 buffalo chicken salads. Uh, you can get it as a wrap. You can call them for pickup. You can text. You can get it delivered, whatever you want. Or you can go to Soto, and they'll just hand you the food and put it in the back of your trunk, and uh, you can go home and cook it yourself. So uh, kudos to all the uh, the local restauranteurs and just local businesses, small businesses in, in very tough times right now. Keith, uh, we'll get to this Myron roll. Anything else you want to add about Myron? I mean, it was it, – it was – uh, you know, I, I mean, the reality is this, Keith. He was not a, an All-American football player at Florida State, but he was an All-American individual that continues to represent Florida State well. If I had a daughter that was not married, I'd be trying to hook them up. Let's just put it that way. I would love to have a Myron role as a son-in-law. Well said. We'll take a break, and then we'll have that interview with Myron right after this on Front Row Knowles. Front Row Knowles on 97.9 ESPN Radio is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now, back to Tom and Keith. Welcome back to Front Row Knowles. Really pleased to bring to the program one of the great Seminoles out there, and there's a lot of them. This guy, a 2008 Rhodes Scholar, Myron Roll, Dr. Myron Roll, who I haven't seen in a couple of years. I think last time I saw you, Myron, it was uh, on the sideline in Chestnut Hill. But how are you, first and foremost? Doing well, doing well. Hanging in there with COVID-19 up here in Boston, but, uh, you know, doing the best I can. By the way, it makes me feel really old to know it was 2008 when you won the Rhodes Scholar. Uh, we're named a Rhodes Scholar because uh, that's more than a decade ago now. So I guess we're not getting any younger. That's true. That's true. It does seem uh, it seems like it happened yesterday, but you think about it, it's been a, it's been a while for sure. Well, obviously, the genesis of this interview is because it's been well chronicled. Now you've 
you've talked to a lot of folks in the media nationally about what you're doing. Uh, and for those who don't know, sort of the Cliffs Notes is you're in the middle of your residency at Mass General up in, in Boston, but uh, obviously COVID-19 is affecting this entire country. And so you're now on the front lines of it. So is this something you volunteered for? Is this something that everybody that's doing any kind of residency at Mass General, it's all hands on deck? Or just kind of explain how you got to the role you, you're in right now and what exactly that role entails. Yeah, so Boston is a, uh, it's a hotbed, I think, of infection. We have a lot of patients who uh, are from this local Massachusetts, Boston area, but then also from the region, the New England region. We are a huge hospital, 1,000 bed, and we're a huge referral center for Maine, Vermont, uh, New Hampshire. Um, we get people from uh, other parts of the country and um, even overseas as well, Bermuda, a lot of people from there. So we uh, typically have a lot of patients that just come through. And when COVID-19 hit our particular city very hard, things started to change in our hospital. Uh, procedures started to change, policy started to change, and we started running low on personnel to practically manage some of these patients. We needed bed space and we needed manpower. And um, there was an opportunity to volunteer for this surge clinic, this hospital within a hospital that sees COVID-19 patients or people with analogous symptoms who come off the street. And I wanted to be a part of that. Uh, it was offered to me by our department chairman. And I felt that, you know, yes, I'm going into um, medicine as a neurosurgeon. I want to do the brain and spine. I love the central nervous system. I love to operate. But this is me being redistributed and redeployed in a different area. Uh it's still being able to serve a very vulnerable population. So me and my colleagues, we decided to, to take the, take up this charge and be led by the critical care doctors, the medical doctors, the infectious disease doctors, the anesthesiologists who are uh, allowing us um, the opportunity to manage these patients and help treat them. It's a hospital-wide effort. Everybody is sort of all hands on deck. If you want to be a part of the fight, you can. And neurosurgery, we have done so uh, because we've had to adjust even – our operating rooms have been slowed down. Our elective cases have been canceled. Our outpatient clinics are different now. We're doing those virtually. Our floor has been taken over and transformed into a COVID-19-only floor. So there's been a lot of adjustments in a departmental uh, base. But uh, as far as the hospital is concerned in the fight, um, we wanted to put our hat in and do our part. I don't want to oversimplify this, but in essence, is your uh – you know, your your residency, is it sort of on hiatus right now because you're all, I mean, you're not volunteering one or two days a week and then dealing with your residency, the other five or six, you're all in on the front lines right now. That's correct. So it's it's still happening, it's a mixture. It's a weird intertwining of uh, what we do as neurosurgeons versus what we do uh, as helping COVID-19 patients. And there's a lot of overlap too, because if you have patients who come in, who have fallen, uh, who have you know, atrial fibrillation and on some sort of blood thinner, hit their head, they have a brain bleed, but they're also, you know, 87 and have COVID-19 and they're positive. It's sort of a balance between, okay, how do you manage your COVID-19? What tests do you need to get? What infectious disease consult do you need? Bio threats? What chest X-ray or CT chest scans do you need? You know, how do you manage that aspect of their health? But then also, what do we do about the brain bleed that potentially can kill them quickly? They can decompensate fast from it. So there's a little bit of a balance between both. So Yes, my residency program is still ongoing. Learning and training is still happening. Emergency surgeries, I just did one uh, the other day. 
Um, and that still happened. That was not a COVID patient. But yeah, it's sort of a balance between these two pressing issues. Neurosurgery is not something, in my opinion, I'm biased, but I don't think it's something that you can wait on. So everything has sort of happened now, now, now. And COVID-19 is sort of the same thing with how quickly we see these patients decompensate and lose their respiratory status and need to be urgently or emergently intubated. Why don't you walk us through what you're seeing, not so much with, with patients and symptoms right now, but just in terms of access to the hospital and are there enough masks and uh, equipment and, and just kind of what a mental and physical toll it's taking on your other colleagues that are dealing with this. So when you walk into Mass General Hospital, uh, it's sort of like going through airport security. Uh, you have to get a mask. Um, every employee, regardless of what position you have in our Mass General Hospital community, you need to wear a mask. Hand sanitizers are everywhere. Security's at the gate, making sure that you have this app, this um, hospital healthcare system app partners uh, that tells you whether you have any symptoms or not. If you don't, then you're cleared for work. If you do, then you get triaged elsewhere. Uh, visitors are not allowed to be in our hospital anymore, so the, the normal foot traffic that goes through the hallways is certainly reduced. As I mentioned, our outpatient clinics are now done all virtually. We call up our patients to tell them about their CT scans of the MRIs uh, and basically tell them how we're going to reschedule their next appointment. Our floors, as I mentioned, have been transformed. Operating rooms, we typically run 10 to 12 neurosurgery operating rooms every, uh, every day. And now it's one, maybe two. It's very, very much reduced. The volume has slowed down tremendously. The, uh, the ED, the emergency department, is full of patients who are either being intubated or going under respiratory support. Our um, uh, perioperative um, anesthesia recovery rooms that we typically use for our post-operative patients have been transformed into ICUs as well. Even some of our pediatric patients in our pediatric ICU have now been transferred to Boston Children's Hospital, the main hospital in the city, so that we can open up some of the pediatric spaces for adult patients. So we're trying to be proactive of how we create bed space, create opportunities, create um, uh, support, uh, manpower practically for these patients um, because the surge is happening and it will continue to increase here in Boston in the next week or so. Yeah, I was just reading that the peak is expected late April, I think, in Boston, and you would know more than me, but so you're, you're coming right into that. What about in terms of what you've encountered firsthand? I'm, I'm sure there's been uh, bad results, but hopefully some good results too with the patients you've encountered. So I'd say that our patients have, um, uh, have had to deal with COVID-19 in a way that's been trying uh, for not only the patient, but also the family. Uh, if we don't have family nearby, I'm someone who believes in the familial energy, having loved ones around, supportive people around. And if you're in this battle, in a cold ICU by yourself around strangers who are poking and prodding and trying to figure out how they can get your oxygen saturation rates up, how they can get help you uh, expand your lungs so you can recruit more, um, more cells to, to get more oxygen to your body. This is all very difficult on the patient. COVID-19 has a propensity for hitting the alveolar um, spaces, uh, angiotensin converting enzyme spaces like the lungs. And so that's why it sits in the, in, the, in the pulmonary system for a while. And then after day five or six, you know, you have this quick decompensation that happens often with the cytokine release, sort of this storm that happens, and it becomes very difficult. Um, I've seen patients have to be emergently or urgently intubated after, you know, they're just breathing very fast, can't get oxygen into their body. They have to be flipped prone to allow their, their lungs to expand. I've seen end of life and goals of care discussion with family members who once were talking to their family member a week ago, enjoying 
their life, enjoying having value to their community. The next second thinking about, well, if your loved one was outside of his body or her body and was looking at himself with a tube down his throat, would you want to live like that? Would you want to go forward like this? I mean, these are very challenging conversations to have. Thankfully, we have some amazing providers, nurses and doctors who have helped uh, keep families abreast, keep them updated and give them the dignity and respect to uh, help work through you know, these trying times. So it's been very, very difficult. There's no question. Uh, for me, it's put a human and a real face on COVID-19. Sometimes we can be sort of disconnected from the real stories that are happening day to day, but being in a hospital, seeing it every day, um, it's, uh, it makes it more, more real. That's where I was headed with my next question. I mean, you've been to med school. You're in your third year of uh, your residency. I mean, none of this is, you've seen a lot. But has some of this been eye-opening for you? It has been eye-opening, and it's been something that we certainly haven't prepared for. You know, I went into medicine to go into neurosurgery right away, specifically. Ben Carson inspired me to do neurosurgery. I'm, you know, I shadowed uh, a lot of doctors, Dr. Chris Romana, uh, at Tallahassee Memorial Hospital, neurosurgeon in, in town. You know, I've, I've had this mindset of going into the brain and spine for a while. Um, never did I expect to, you know, be pulled to um, man or help manage some of these COVID-19 patients with this very novel virus that we know some about, we're getting to know more about. But frankly, I think we were caught flat-footed as a healthcare system in general, not just Boston, but around the country, maybe even the world. And so uh, certainly not something we expected, but now that it's here, now that we're gathering more information, it's about trying to find ways to um, get out in front, mitigate any of the challenges that we have, make very proactive decisions instead of reactive and be a team throughout this whole thing. You mentioned the isolation factor for families and how hard it is when they're removed from the patient. It's hard if you don't have somebody who's dealing with COVID just being isolated. I mean, you, you can get that sense just when you watch the news or others you interact with. Uh, this has been a significant change to the way we live our lives and it's, it's made everybody uncomfortable. And I don't mean to minimize those that have COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. Staying, you know, being apart uh, and not having that connection, that um, return to baseline is, is is challenging. And I can see it from myself and from some of my colleagues. You know, I uh, mentioned to you off offline that I got married a couple months ago and I would love to have my wife here with me as I walk home every day and, you know, sort of become unfiltered with her about what happened during the day and how everything went. Mm -hmm. Frankly, I... I know that my scrubs and my body could be a nidus for infection, uh, that I'm exposed and re-exposed and re-re-exposed often in the hospital by dealing with COVID-19 patients directly. And I don't want to put her in that harm's way. So she's down in the South. She's down in Columbus, Georgia with her family. And, you know, we FaceTime all the time, but it's not the same as the interpersonal energy and that connection that uh, helps keep me sane through residency and through challenging times, regardless of if COVID-19 is here or some, you know, a bad brain tumor hit or something, you know, that happened in medicine. You always have these days where you need that, um, that person to help buttress you. And she's been that for me. Uh, but right now, you know, we're, we're separate. And a lot of my, again, colleagues are, are facing the same sort of issues. Some of them are staying in hotels away from their family members. Some of them are staying in a basement while their family stays, you know, up in the, in the house. So it's been, it's been very hard uh, across the board. I'll wrap up here momentarily, and uh, I want to widen this conversation just briefly since my, our audience obviously knows you from your Tallahassee and Florida State days. 
Uh, and again, certainly not to make light of anything that's much more serious than this, but what do you miss about Tallahassee and your time here? Well, I, I miss uh, the food, number one. Uh, I enjoyed uh, my my experiences indulging in several different restaurants, including one that's a chain, but I love it anyway, Waffle House on Tennessee Street. Uh, <laughs> I certainly I certainly missed it, the college enthusiasm and the atmosphere of being around a young, just a vibrant place that uh, is full of, um, you know, just hardworking and caring and loving people. When you're in a fast city like Boston, it's sort of, you know, go, 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 get, 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 let's move, let's move, let's move. The weather's a little bit colder. People are just getting where they want to get to. Boston's a great city, there's no question, but there's a level of warmth not only just uh, literally, um, but also figuratively, uh, that you feel in Tallahassee. And having both my degrees, uh, undergraduate and medical school from Florida State, um, certainly means a lot to me. I try to stay connected as much as possible. Uh, and whenever FSU plays uh, in, in our area at Boston College or if they play you know, Harvard or MIT for some reason, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get there as much as possible. And then in terms of your uh, residency, if I recall right, this is a seven-year residency, isn't it? So just give us kind of a, a thumbnail sketch. You're about halfway through, I guess. And, and I don't know, it's probably too early maybe for you to decide where you're going to want to practice when you finish this. But how has that experience been outside of what you're dealing with right now with COVID? It's been a great experience. I've learned from some of the best neurosurgeons who have perfected their craft in such a way that it's almost like a master um, – uh, artist just painting a, a beautiful picture and you just sort of learn through osmosis being close to him or her and figuring out the ways that they do it, figuring out the ways that another physician does it, another one does it, and using an amalgamation of all those wonderful talents and trying to incorporate it into your own style. For me, I'm going into pediatric neurosurgery, uh, so I have to do another year of fellowship after the seven years are done. Not sure where that's going to be yet, uh, but there are several different hospitals uh, that are children's focused that are wonderful. Boston Children's is great. Vanderbilt has a wonderful uh, children's hospital, Miami, Emory, Sick Kids in Toronto is fantastic, and Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is also a, a leading contender. I'm also going into global neurosurgery, so during my research time, in my fourth and fifth year, I won something called the Paul Farmer Global Research Fellowship, which allows me to um, go to uh, the Harvard Medical School and um, you know really take part in some challenging discussions uh, at the WHO, the governance level, at the world level, about how to deliver um, surgery, especially neurosurgery, to some of these vulnerable and marginalized parts of the world. And then, practically, I get to go to Uganda and other parts of sub-Saharan Africa for a whole year and treat pediatric patients who have hydrocephalus and brain pathologies and also spina bifida. So not only is it, um, you know, uh, speaking to my passion for, for service, um, especially disenfranchised parts of the world, uh, as you know, I'm from the Bahamas and I've always wanted to, you know, give back to my home country and other places that are sort of marginalized, but also speaks to my interest in pediatric neurosurgery. So very excited about the upcoming years. The residency has been going wonderful. It's challenging, no question. But I think football, just going back to football, not to, you know, simplify it anymore as we kind of, you know, alluded to in this conversation. But I, honestly, from playing football since I was six and getting here now, going through tough times, I'm seeing the way that I deal in challenging, tough moments. It's like dealing with Mickey Andrews screaming in your ear. You know, it's like dealing with um, Clemson running down uh, that hill uh, and just seeing the fans go crazy and blocking out the noise and the distraction and really locking uh, in and being focused on the task at hand. And that's helped me tremendously. I've even had to talk to some of the Harvard medical students who mentor, or who I mentor 
about, you know, my football mindset to it. And they hadn't played football, so they can't really experience it, but they tried to adopt the ideology and it's helped them. And so uh, it's, you know, everything is sort of built on each other. Uh, and and I'm, I love the fact that uh, I've been able to see it happen. You mentioned football. So last question, and I'm not talking about your playing days, but you're in a big sports town in Boston. Obviously, Tallahassee is a big sports city following Florida State, but where you are, you know, the Sox fans and the Patriots and Bruins and Celtics. I don't know that you have time in your schedule, but do you miss sports? I mean, just flipping on ESPN and seeing a highlight of, of something. I mean, there's that void there for those of us who are sports fans. I do. I do miss sports. An interesting thing is that my wife uh, does not know anything about sports, uh, doesn't care about it. So when I talk to her about it, she's like, uh, okay, so let's talk about what happened to Real Housewives of Atlanta. And I'm like, oh, okay, all right, that's fine. But yes, I miss it thoroughly. Uh, it's, um, I think we all do, certainly. And you're right. This is a huge sports town here in Boston. The nurses wear Patriots hats all the time. They're still missing Tom Brady. He's down in Florida now, which is, you know, they look at me and like, oh, man, you took him from us. I'm like, hold on, hold on. I'm not a Bucks fan. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I stole Tom Brady, guys. But it's, uh, it's a great place um, to love sports here and to really uh, have those conversations. But uh, I, miss, I miss it, no question. And I think for the safety of the country, uh, and perhaps even the safety of the world, we, we need to think smart about when we're going to restart it. It will happen again, but we just have to be slow to, uh, to you know, to, um, to get it going again because we want to make sure we protect not only the athletes, but also the fans who come in close proximity when they watch these sports. I'm not sure when we'll be back to normal. It may uh, never be back to what we think of as normal. It'll be a new normal, but I do know this. You're on the front lines helping us get back there, and I appreciate several minutes of your time. Stay healthy, and uh, thanks for being such a great ambassador for Florida State. More than that, just a first-class citizen. We appreciate what you do, Myron. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate having me. Thanks. Myron Roll on Front Row Knowles. Back with more right after this. Front Row Knowles is brought to you by the Osceola, dedicated to FSU sports and fan experiences. Sign up for a free trial at theosceola.com or call 833-FSU-NEWS. Welcome back, Front Row Knowles. Special thanks to Myron Roll for joining us. Uh, great kid, great story. Not a kid anymore. Full-grown man and, uh, you know, uh, just year three of seven in terms of his uh, residency as a neurosurgeon. Uh, that said, pleased to welcome back Keith Jones. Keith, uh, you know, you, you, you had some of Myron's accolades. I mean, you're a two-time academic All-American, right? I don't want to sell you short. Well, I, 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 I'm not, I don't have an MD behind my name right now, so that is a clear distinction. And obviously uh, what he's been able to accomplish in his short life, although he's not a young boy anymore, as you mentioned, he's a grown man, is quite outstanding so he is a fine representative of florida state athletics no question i will give you credit though keith in your line of work in risk management you have more acronyms after your name than he does you know i mean you've got a bunch of certifications there so let's not sell you short speaking of certifications uh if you want to talk football who better to talk it with than patrick burnham from the osceola he's our osceola insider joins us obviously uh for those who uh, familiar with Patrick, his, his dad, Wally, was uh, one of the coaches on, on Bobby's dynasty teams and then coached for much longer after that. So football is uh, the family business, so to speak. Patrick, how are you? I'm doing great, guys. How are y'all? We are doing very well. And 
you know, it's interesting in, in this world of no sports, it's like every week is part of the off season. Usually we only deal with this. Really it's, it's May, June and July are kind of the silly season. Uh, I feel like all of the calendar is the silly season right now until we get games back, but there has been plenty of news happening. I somehow Mike Norvell and company uh, continue to extend offers and they've gotten quite a, quite a bit of uh, success in terms of hit rate on transfers. Give us the lowdown. I may not have these correct in terms of sequential order uh, because they all caught my eye, but, but one kid who's transferring in led the country in interceptions last year from FAU. So I know that FAU, but, th- but that's gotta be a nice addition to the already pretty backfield for FSU. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the strengths of the defense we're hoping uh, next year will be the defensive backfield. And, of course, they got uh, some added strength uh, in the transfer of Deontay Williams from, uh, like like you said, FAU. Uh, He is – I'm sorry, Nico Dodson from FAU. Uh, Deontay Williams is the defensive end from Baylor. But uh, he played his high school ball at Daytona Beach Mainland, uh, transferred or signed with Georgia. Florida Tech ended up at Garden City Community College before FAU and, uh, you know, watched his film. He's uh, good in man coverage, good in uh, zone coverage, seems to understand what he's doing no matter whether he's lined up in man, does a great job of high-pointing the ball and obviously uh, with his nine interceptions uh, makes some plays and you would think would just add to the depth uh, what hopefully will be a deep defensive backfield next year. Um, you know, I do want to mention, uh, you know, we're all Florida State graduates on, on this podcast. And, uh, you know, we give a lot of accolades um, and praise to former FSU football players that have made it big in professional sports. And I just want to say that uh, what Myron Roll is doing should make every FSU grad proud. And uh, he's certainly, you know, that was definitely an eye-opening piece that ESPN did on him. And it makes me proud as a Florida State graduate to know that we've got a guy that has, uh, you know, given up a pro football career for the betterment of society and what he's doing right now. I don't think you can heap enough praise on him. And I think the world is lucky uh, to know how lucky we are to have him. And so thankful that there's so many people around the nation that are doing the same thing that he he's doing right now. That's, that's well said, Patrick. And if folks are just tuning in and you missed the interview with Myron Roll, uh, listen to the podcast uh, It aired uh, about 10 or 15 minutes into the show, caught up with him, and uh, he's on the front lines of COVID-19. Great interview, and I appreciate his time. KJ, yeah. John, conversation here. Pat, I was just going to ask, with these transfers, are, are they fulfilling needs? Or, uh, people that were specific for from a position standpoint or? falling into Florida State's lap? Well, you know, I think the Fabian Lovett kid from Mississippi State, he's a uh, defensive tackle, defensive uh, nose guard. You know, I think he kind of fell into their lap. Uh, you know, he he was upset with Mike Leach over Mike's uh, tweet with the noose, and uh, he and his father were uncomfortable with Fabian carrying on at Mississippi State. So he's a guy that I don't think they would have gotten otherwise, but he does does uh, provide some depth at that defensive tackle, nose tackle position where, you know, Florida State's got a chance to be very good with Marvin Wilson, Corey Durden, Dennis Briggs, and Robert Cooper, among others. You got Jarrett Jackson there. Uh, there is no guarantee that he's going to be eligible. He's He's got to get a waiver. 
uh, I believe, uh, or they got to pass the one tra- the one year tra- one time transfer rule between now and uh, the start of the season. But certainly, he's a guy that kind of fell into their lap because of Mike Leach's misstep on social media. And then Deontay Williams was a guy from Baylor, defensive end, whose father Alfonso Williams played at Florida State back in the '80s. Alley Cat is what most people know him as, and uh, he played uh, as a Redshirt freshman and redshirt sophomore, then uh, in 2018 got a significant arm injury uh, playing against Texas where he was carted off the field, and uh, it's pretty nasty based on what I've read about it. And he did not play last year, medically DQ'd at Baylor, uh, decided he wanted to play again, and obviously as a graduate transfer could go to the school of his choice, and he cho- chose his father alma mater, uh, his father's alma mater. Uh, so, you know, they – Picked up some depth at defensive end, outside linebacker. I think they'll probably play him in it. He was an edge guy at Baylor based off what little film I could find and uh, a guy that will add some, uh, you know, Janarius Robinson did not uh, participate in a lot of the spring, uh, what little spring there was. So it gives you a guy that's got some uh, experience playing big-time football and add some depth to your uh, front four. We're talking with Patrick Burnham from the Osceola. I'll remind our listeners, if you uh, don't subscribe already, go to theosceola.com. They've got a 30-day free trial right now. If you try that out, I guarantee at the end of 30 days, you'll just go ahead and say, let me do it. Do this for a year for $74.95. Uh, been around uh, since the early 1980s. Jerry Kutz uh, back involved again, and we appreciate their expertise. Patrick, how many transfers is this now that Norvell has brought in since he's arrived uh, I don't even remember the date, you know. Uh, minimum of five, six with uh, Love Taylor at tackle. Uh, then you got Jarrett Jackson from Louisville. It's going to be a three technique, it looks like. And uh, then Deshaun Corbin from uh, Texas A&M at running back, who's obviously in the spring. So you've got at least six transfers. Uh, I would expect more. I would not be surprised uh, if you saw some transfer offensive linemen between grad transfer offensive linemen between now and the time fall camp run, uh, comes around, uh, no matter when that is. Uh, hopefully uh, it'll be on time, but I don't think there's any guarantee of that. But uh, I, it's certainly not over. The one uh, – the one piece of the puzzle or the one piece of the machinery that keeps on turning, as you mentioned, is recruiting. I mean, they just took an offer from Jake Slaughter, a 6'4", 300-pound center from Trinity Catholic High School in Ocala, who had offers from Miami, Missouri, Indiana, Old Miss, Pitt, USF, to name a few. So uh, even though there's an extended NCAA period, the kids can still reach out to the coaches on the phone Um, you know, with phone calls, and obviously the coaches can do electronic email, um, instant messaging, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, whatever the social media platform is, that hasn't been stopped. So recruiting has continued to go on, and um, Jake Slaughter makes their fifth commitment for this recruiting class, and they have offered kids uh, across the country for 2021 and 2022 in the last week. So uh, the recruiting piece of the puzzle is continuing to build. Keith Jones is using this Zoom and walking around the house. What you got going on, KJ? You want to share with Well, I'm trying to move to a little better place. I noticed my audio was a little bit bad, so I'm getting closer to the router. Uh, you Aren't you surprised that I know what a router is? I'm not sure you know what it is so much as you just got that word in the middle of the conversation. Well, <laughs> I like it. I was going to ask Patrick, you know, one of the things about these the, the changing times, is, is this going to really change – maybe change how recruiting is done 
uh, in terms of all the travel and everything. If, if you can accomplish the same thing like we are using Zoom or whatever, might that materially affect recruiting? Well, I, you know, I think that there's a, a chance that it's going to change a little bit, but overall, no. I, you know, listen, there's still not there's still nothing like getting out and meeting somebody one on one. It's a relationship that's got to be uh, last for four or five years, and there's nothing like shaking somebody's hand and sitting across from them and looking them in the eye. Now, uh, it may change things for this particular recruiting class, but. You know, I think that there's still a premium on getting able out and being able to evaluate a kid out of practice. And certainly I think you have a better feeling for a human being uh, when no matter what walk, you know, what you're doing, uh, when you get a chance to be in the same room with them. So uh, will it change some things? Yes, I think that you will see coaches interact more with kids on Zoom. That will change. Uh, they probably didn't Zoom a lot with kids in the past now everybody's got a zoom account uh and you can get that face-to-face -face time that otherwise would have been spent on the phone uh not seeing each other or uh you know facetime's obviously a big part of it so i think there will be some minor changes but i still think that coaches it's important that you get out it's important that you visit with kids it's important that you get kids on your campus so i don't see much changing from that that aspect Pat, let's talk about a not a recruit or a transfer but a current player who got a significant scare here, and and I'm talking about Baselli, and I'm not sure if the beat was aware, but all of a sudden Florida State made the announcement last week, and they told the story through uh, his perspective, but he and his entire family, uh, you know, were afflicted with COVID-19, and, and thankfully they all survived, and he's turned the corner, but that, that sort of put a face on something. You know, I think at this point most of us know somebody. Yep. But uh, if you didn't, that certainly brought it very close to home here in his story. Well, you know, I think we all were hoping that we would not be affected by it or know somebody that was affected by it. Uh, and you're right, it doesn't truly, you can't truly comprehend it until you know somebody that's uh, been affected by it. And uh, right before Andrew's uh, story broke about his family, I, there's a guy I work with at South Florida whose wife got it, so it hit home right away for me. But yeah, Andrew Baselli's family, uh, Andrew did have it, his brother got it, his mother and father uh, both got it. Uh, Andrew had what he called mild symptoms, uh, and even with the mild symptoms, he was running a fever and was short of breath. Now, his father, who uh, should be an NFL Hall of Famer, Tony Baselli, uh, is 47 years old, still looks like he play NFL football today, and Tony ended up in the ICU for uh, three days, and they were very close to putting him on a ventilator and based on everything you read had no pre-existing conditions and uh as uh andrew put it you know you go from thinking well i can't be affected by this until uh, up until hey i may lose my father is uh, kind of how the paraphrase him so you know it kind of reminds us of how fragile life is and he did tell me uh obviously that it was disconcerting to him even though he had a mild case he still dealt with the shortness of breath and you're talking about a 22 year old athlete that has just gone through an off-season conditioning program and you know it made him you know certainly made him uh, nervous uh, for lack of uh, a better term but certainly uh, you know not to know uh, what was going to happen with anybody in your family it had to be a very uh, scary time for the Baselli's and by all the things we can gather the family is on the mend uh, I know his dad that was still having some days where 
he would feel pretty good and then go back to where he couldn't, you know, get out of bed. That was the uh, COVID-19 was just draining the energy out of him. But certainly uh, you hate to see anybody go through it. And certainly I uh, hate to see a whole family that's, uh, you know, got it, but they were all in the same house together. They were all quarantined together. And uh, thankfully they look like they're on the mend. The Osceola has been doing a series of video chats with all the Florida State coaches, uh, Patrick. And I know we asked you back when the staff was first assembled, your impressions. You did a lot of due diligence on all these guys. Has I'm sure your opinion hasn't changed, but I'm wondering if anything else resonates as you've seen and been a part of these interviews in terms of the staff that Mike Norvell assembled. Well, you know, it's, it, we kind of did two things with them. We took the first half of the interview and made it strictly football. And then we took the second part of the interview, and we had about 30 minutes with each coach. And, uh, we, you know, we took the second 15 and, you know, to try to make it a little bit lighter. There's so much seriousness right now in the world. And so we talked to them about music and movies and Netflix and Tiger King. We talked Tiger King with some of them. And, you know, uh, to hear some of their musical interests, but they certainly seem like they're all approachable guys. We got to see a little bit of their personality. It was kind of funny to talk to Coach JP or John Papu. Just uh, he was he's still, as far as I know, still up in Maryland. He had gone home for spring break. Uh, you know, his wife, they have either four or five kids. And so his wife, had he gotten stuck in Tallahassee during, for this, which is thankful he didn't, but they had already broke for spring break. But, you know, he, uh, you know, just listening to his kids in the background and how thankful his wife was to have him home during this time. But, uh, you know, and then you had Marcus Woodson, who was in Auburn. So some of these guys are not even in town. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you were very impressed with uh, – the fact that of uh, how they're getting creative with the recruiting part of the puzzle, the Zoom, the FaceTime, uh, they're very active on Twitter. But uh, it was fun to sit down and talk with them about football, about their football influences, who's been important in their football life, but also what's important to them off the field. And, you know, they all were very uh, forthcoming and, you know, they did, didn't refuse to answer any questions and they might have even thought some of it was silly. Now, I had fun with it and so did Jerry and Bob. We hope they did. But it was kind of uh, just a chance to try to give our subscribers a, a look into who they are as people away from the football field. Uh because, you know, they've got – I don't know if they have a lot of extra time on their hands, but, you know, we wanted to get a little bit of feel uh, for who they were as people, what their personalities were like. They all have some similar traits. Uh, it's amazing how alike they are in certain areas when they talk and their interests. There's no question. Yeah, and, you know, they're, they're all football guys. I mean, you, you listen to them talk about football and – uh, how much they enjoy it. And, you know, I mean, the one thing that I've been impressed with is, you know, they all uh, – and I don't think there's any BS in it. They all talk about how much respect they have for the type of coach Mike Norvell is and how he holds them accountable, but he also lets them do his job. And, you know, he – so – and they, how they much respect him as a man off the field. So, uh, you know, I, I was – you know, I, I thought that – you know, when they all talked about it at the recruiting dinner on National Signing Day in front of Florida State fans, they didn't really have any reason to do that uh, in our interviews, But and we didn't ask them. I mean, they just kind of volunteered the information about, you know, uh, whether it's Kenny Dillingham talking about what a impact Mike Norvell has had on his coaching career. And, you know, that uh, you talked to Chris Thompson, who was one of his coaches, and 
uh, at Mike Norvell's coaches at Central Arkansas and talked about the fact that he recognized early on that Mike Norvell had a chance to be a really good coach. Uh, not that he ever saw him being the head coach at Florida State, but that he had something about him that was going to make him a good coach. And then, of course, you know, uh, talking about how fast coaching. So, anyway, it was kind of interesting to get their takes on Norval. And uh, then, of course, you know, uh, John Pappy just worked with Saban and Bo Pelini, who uh, neither one of – you don't think about as comedians, but he was talking about how funny uh, Pelini and Saban were away from the cameras and how they were jokesters in the staff room, which I still can't believe. But uh, anyway, so it was kind of, uh, it was very insightful to sit down and talk with those guys. It really was. I want to see video evidence of that because I'm not buying that story either. Hey, Patrick, as we wrap up, are we going to start on time with this football season? I, you know, listen, I don't think we will. I mean, that's my personal opinion. Uh, I have talked to some people, uh, other college coaches uh, around the United States, nobody at Florida State, but I've got friends that coach a little bit of everywhere in the South, out West. And, uh, you know, I know that I've talked to a coach on one staff uh, who believes it'll be October before the start of the season. Uh, I'm a little bit more in line with that. I'm hoping uh, that it's before then. I would love for it to start on time. Uh, and listen, this is, it's going to be a moving target. Uh, hopefully we're getting a better grip on this every single day. Hopefully our scientists and doctors, and I'm sure they are working around the clock, but, uh, you know, we need this, uh, we need to get back to uh, as the new normal as quickly as it can for a lot of reasons, uh, not just football, but certainly for those of us that love athletics and love Florida State football, we would like to see it back sooner rather than later. But uh, I think there will be a football season. I just don't know when it's going to start. Well, we're scheduled to play Clemson on October 10th, so I vote for October 11th. That's just my two cents. Yeah, yeah. Well, you listen, they're working <laughs> with all kind of models. I know that. But, uh, you know, it, it, is, uh, it is interesting times we're going through. And, uh, you know, uh, when, I, when we talk about football season, you know, that's just one industry. If we're not back to normal – with the football part of things by August, what other industries are impacted? Uh, you know, how many jobs were lost, uh, not only in athletics, but across the board. Uh, so, you know, listen, uh, you know, we, I, I pray every night that, uh, you know, we prove that we're the greatest nation on earth and that we figure out a way to solve this dilemma sooner rather than later. There, there are no easy answers. Amen to that. Patrick, appreciate your insight and expertise as always. Tell the Osceola folks we said hello. I'll do it, guys. You guys have a great night. Thanks, Pat. All right, guys. Patrick Burnham from the Osceola. And if you don't subscribe, go to theosceola.com. Check it out, 30-day free trial. Keith and I will take a break. We'll come back, and we will wrap things up on this week's edition of Front Row Knowles. Stay with us. I was flying. Front Row Knowles on 97.9 ESPN Radio is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now, back to Tom and Keith. Welcome back to Front Row Knowles. Tom and TJ, as we finish up, 
Good to hear from Ryan Roll. Appreciate Patrick Burnham's perspective. It is, it's all the silly season right now. Not that the Osceola is doing silly work or any of the outlets covering FSU, but it's an awful lot of recruiting and how was the visit and we're talking to the nutritionists and we're talking to the strength coaches like we did and we're talking to the trainers. Pretty soon we'll be talking to the guys that hold the headsets on game day because we've got to fill the time. There's no question. And I've been reaching out to some of our advertisers. We mentioned uh, uh, Centrale and Madison Social and and those folks, and of course, Earl Bacon Agency, the sponsors are, are I, saw, I talked to Bob Hobson this morning, and if you need a new Chevrolet, now might be a good time to get one. He'll bring it to you. Uh, he, you can buy it for 84 months with no interest and no payments for 120 days or something. Uh, I mean, I, I think he'll give you some money if you just take it off his hands almost. Uh, so everybody's doing business a little differently. Well, and just to continue the NASCAR theme, shout out to Cornerstone Tool and Fastener. They've been with us a while, too, big-time supporters of our program uh, and ESPN Tallahassee in general. So thanks to Ron and the folks there at Cornerstone Tool and Fastener. I I said at the beginning, Keith, that we're not going to get into the speculation game. This is not speculation. I miss even the background noise of sports. I mean, I'm not a guy – I don't have enough hours in the day to invest in much beyond FSU. So I'm not somebody that's watching a midseason NBA game closely, i.e. sitting on the couch paying attention. But I'd put it on in the background, or I'd put a baseball game on, or I'd put SportsCenter on, and I'm walking around doing something else and then stop and look up and, oh, LeBron did something. And it's not there right now, and it is a void. And, you know, there's something about the monotony and the fact that every day right now is Groundhog Day man, the deeper you get into it, the more monotonous it gets. And now we're going on a month of this. And frankly, it's getting old. I don't know about you. It's very old. You know, uh, your house sounds a little bit like my house. We usually have the TV on, even if we're not listening to it closely. Well, all that's really on right now is news. And I don't want to listen to the news. You know, I want to find out you know, first thing in the morning, what's happening from a general standpoint, but I don't, I don't want to listen to all the rest of this stuff. And so you come home at night and, and I sit on the back porch and watch my grass grow and uh, see if the clouds will bring some rain. Uh, the TV stays off so I, I can hear the dogs whimpering and, you know, then they start barking at something. Uh, it, it's, it's, there's a, just a void, you know, almost like there's not any activity going on because you're, you you kind of want to insulate yourself, and yeah, I agree with you. Uh, you know, I, without sports, you know, because we're so wrapped up in it, right, wrong, or indifferent, it, it is really different. I've not experienced anything like this for this period of time. And I don't know that you and I have talked about this, and it goes without saying that we're not trying to trivialize what's going on. We all understand what's going on here, uh, and sports takes a back seat to it. But when I first got out of school and got into sports. One of the reasons, aside from the fact I like sports, I like the fact that sports are an outlet to people. Sports are supposed to be what takes you away from what you're dealing with nine to five or dealing with on the family front. It's a three hour break from whatever other noise is in the system that you can and you can invest in it. And and some of us invest too much, you know, emotionally or financially uh, into the sport. But you also can just observe it and appreciate it for what it is. And either way, it's entertainment, and certainly it'd be a distraction. And to me, I think the void right now, it's evident to me that it goes well beyond just the sports fan per se. I mean, I think there's a void for a lot of folks that it's not there. 
even someone who's not really a fan but might go to the baseball game with their spouse. I mean, you don't have an entertainment option right now. You know, I don't want to compare necessarily the two, and I'm going to 9-11. I don't want to compare 9-11 to COVID-19, but I will simply say that we went through that period of time when everything shut down for, for 9-11, and the first thing that came back that we were able to rally around was athletics. And I remember the Yankees had a baseball game, and, and we were able to, to recognize – uh, the members of the fire department in New York that had, had lost their lives in 9-11 along with other first responders. And, and it was a way to, to, to release some anger and frustration and to celebrate something. And so I'm with you. I, I think sports serves a very, very important role. It by no means is more important, but it does, it has a place, a proper place in our, in our fabric, and it'll be really nice to get back to it. Candidly, I'm like you, Keith. I haven't wanted to invest. I know you're not in social media, but I haven't spent much time on Twitter. There's just not a lot out there that I really want to pay attention to because all it is is a numerical update on number of cases and number of deaths with COVID-19, to be, uh, to be frank. We mentioned primetime Knowles earlier in the show, and again, we're going way back on memory lane, but 9-11 was a Tuesday. And we used to do our pre-production calls on Tuesdays for primetime Knowles. And so I, I remember distinctly that we had a call. It might have been 10 in the morning. And so the planes hit the towers at 8.30 and 9. I don't remember the exact times. And we still went forward with the call. Nobody realized the magnitude of what had just happened. We're kind of on this call thinking, well, I don't know if we're going to play a game this week. Obviously, it became very clear in short order that we weren't going to. But I do remember starting that call and having no realization of, of just how much our lives had changed on 9-11. Well, and one of the things you've forgotten is that Paul Kennedy was not on that call because Paul was in an airplane flying to Atlanta and then flying back to Tallahassee because he was speaking to the Tallahassee quarterback club that night. And he got to Atlanta and they grounded everything and he ended up having to rent a car to drive all the way back to Orlando the next day because there was no air traffic. And obviously we did not have a quarterback club meeting that night either. I had forgotten that detail. Unfortunately, I do remember the next detail and then we'll finish up the Yankees game, obviously, and, and the president throwing out the first pitch and all that. But the first football game that was played after that was FSU at North Carolina, 41 to nine Tar Heels. And uh, and actually, Lynn Swan broadcast that game. And when we flew out, because we weren't flying with the team then, we were doing the Sun Sport. It was thinking it might have been Sunshine Network at that point. There literally were five people in the airport bar, and it was me, you, Lynn Swan, and another buddy, and yep. nobody else getting on an airplane to go anywhere. Exactly. And you and I were drowning our sorrows over forty-one to nine. So that 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 was a long note, everybody. game. How's that, that was for a ending long the show on a game. Yeah, that was a long game. Um, but you know what? We'd take 41-9 over no games right now. That's where we're at. Yep, I agree. I agree. Yeah, that's where we're at. All right, we'll do this again next week. KJ, stay safe. Say hello to Kathy, and I'll catch up with you soon. Uh, kiss the kids for me. Tell them hi. And uh, what's that lady you're married to, Miss Laura? Make sure exactly. you take care of her. You better remember her name. I know I got to get it straight every night. No question. There you go. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you again next week on Front Row Knowles. 